And so the question is like, it's unclear, I guess, what this next generation of buyers, collectors, care about. What art do they want to support? Do they think of art collecting in the same way as previous generations? I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. So, how is the art market doing these days? If you want to know the answer, you're in luck, because the latest issue of Artnet's biannual intelligence report just dropped. It's a special edition because it marks the five-year anniversary of the report, which we debuted back in 2018 as a way of fusing Artnet's unparalleled market data with the industry-leading abilities of our market journalists. Unfortunately, the findings this time around are less than festive. In fact, the art market has taken a major hit this year. So what's going on here? What does this mean? Should art professionals be panicking in the streets, or should they be doing something else and maybe making a lot of money in the process? Recently, these questions were at the heart of a live conversation exclusive for Artnet Pro members that I conducted with Katja Kazakina, the renowned art market reporter and art detective columnist who wrote the tour de force cover story on the state of the art business for our new issue. It was a lively event where Pro members were able to ask questions and dig further into the report's data. And if you'd like to be invited to future events like it, you should sign up for Artnet Pro today. It's an indispensable tool for anybody interested in keeping up with the changing art market. Hello, everybody, and thank you for taking the time to join us this afternoon for a live conversation about the findings in the latest edition of our intelligence report exclusively for pro members. This is a special occasion because not only is it the five-year anniversary of the intelligence report, which we debuted back in 2018 as a way of fusing Artnet's unparalleled market data with the industry-leading abilities of our market journalists, it's also the first time we've done this kind of live conversation about the report, so we're excited to see how this goes. The most special thing about the conversation today, well, I'm joined here by none other than Katja Kazakina, the renowned art market reporter and art detective columnist who wrote the Tour de Force cover story on the state of the art business for our new issue. So there's a lot to talk about. By now, I'm sure you've all devoured the intelligence report, so you know the main takeaway the art market just got walloped big time. To quickly revisit the data, collected between January 1st and May 20th of this year, auction sales of trophy lots, $10 million and above, plummeted by a whopping 51% compared to the equivalent period last year. The fine art auction market as a whole tumbled 14% to $5 billion worldwide. And tellingly, the much speculated upon ultra-contemporary art sector of work by artists born after 1974 fell down by 26%. So after years of steady growth in the market, these are very troubling numbers. And if you're an auction house or an auction consigner, you may be a little bit freaked out by now. That's okay. So what's going on here? What does this mean? Should art professionals be panicking in the streets or should they be doing something else and maybe making a lot of money in the process? Those are some of the questions that I'm gonna ask Katya in a minute. But we also hope that you, our valued pro members, have some burning questions of your own. So we've built in a question and answer session after our conversation where you can ask Katja or God forbid myself anything you want about the art market. And let's dive in. Katja, how's it going? Well, no two ways about it. The summer has not been a good one for the art market. The market got hit hard this year. For context, just to show 
how big of a change this is. Take us back in time a little bit to last year. What was the market like in the summer of 2022 or the first half of the year of 2022? The main, I guess, right around now, last August, Christie's announced the auction of Paul Allen's estate. And that was estimated at a billion dollars and it was full of masterpieces and was highly anticipated for years. It was a very exciting moment for the art market. There's never been an auction of that caliber, these types of numbers. So it felt quite euphoric. The dollar was very strong. The interest rate just started to rise, but people felt very bullish. I think the Paul Allen sale, which broke all records, as we know, in November, became kind of this watershed moment that in some way made the picture much more optimistic. And behind the scenes, certain red flags began to appear. And uh, reporting the story for the intelligence report, I kept hearing that these cracks in the market really started slowing down after Art Basel 2022. So if you take Paul Allen out of the picture, you see a slightly different situation, as our colleagues have noted in their coverage in November. And of course, last year was tied close to the pandemic. The pandemic shut down the art market for most intents and purposes, not all intents and purposes, but it largely put a ceiling on the kind of the masterpiece market that used to go to the auction realm. And then there was this huge flood of a resurgence that came after the pandemic, where there was a lot of money that was pent up. There were low interest rates. There was a lot of excitement to start buying and, and, and participating in this market again. The dollar figures really started to go up and all the charts that we look at so closely around here started to go up. And then last year was when the cracks started to appear. And I think readers of your column will have noticed these cracks have been you know, in your headlines since the very beginning of the year. I think you wrote on January 12th, the column that's called The Party's Over, Art Market Players Brace for an Anxious 2023 Amid Slower Sales and Growing Discounts. Following the Paul Allen sales, how did Miami kind of capture this change in the weather? Well, what I remember during the VIP preview at Art Basel Miami Beach, really empty aisles. That's the first thing that struck me. And then the second thing that struck me was that there were like dealers at the main galleries just like kind of huddled around their tables. And normally they would be like beating off all kinds of clients and taking numbers, taking interest. You know, this is like one of the most active points in the trade. But they were kind of like, you know, wandering around, chatting with each other. There really didn't seem to be any urgency that really spooked a lot of people. And maybe just the way things in a way were set up this year, that there were two opening days during the week. But that's urgency, right? Before people would make a trip on the opening day. This year, buyers sent their advisors and then maybe didn't show up until the weekend. So sales did pick up during the weekend, but people were very worried. And many people told me of lower sales compared to the year before, but, you know, definitely was a different vibe. I reread my story, the one you just referenced, and it kind of made me think also of what we heard about Art Basel just a couple of months ago. In Miami, there were very few Asian and European buyers. In Basel, 
U.S. buyers were in much lower numbers. So it's not the volume of collectors and it's not the volume of transactions that the market became used to since the pandemic. It all went kind of haywire during the pandemic. So this was a little bit of a trouble spot. As the year went on, you you wrote about a couple of other red flags in the market, the disappearance of these so-called uh, Gmail art advisors who are, you know, kind of um, very opportunistic advisors who pop up during hot money periods in the market and then kind of vanish when that that money subsides. And then going into the first really big barometer of the art market this year was, of course, the May New York auctions, the marquee auctions that take place um, every year. And I know the Feinberg sale was an auction that you found to be particularly revelatory when it comes to the shift in the market. So talk through what happened in the Feinberg sale and why was it so interesting? Feinberg sale wasn't supposed to be the largest sale of the season. It came fairly towards the end of two weeks that were packed with activities and totally exhausted collectors and dealers. And it was kind of the last few days of this two-week insanity in New York. Gerald Feinberg was a real estate mogul from Boston, and he died at the end of last year. And his collection that filled his residences in Boston and Palm Beach came up for sale. And these were really kind of from the 70s on the bulk of the collection, contemporary art. It was billed by Christie's, which offered these works as a very big deal. But oddly, it was installed by Christie's in this very salon-style galleries, kind of to the side, not in their main spaces. And they were hanging there very densely installed. And when the sale came up, there obviously have been already certain Lots, you know, by key artists that didn't perform as well as expected. And there was a lot of talk in the market that something has begun to shift. But we've gotten used to and and auction houses really have been working very hard to make sure, and we can talk about it later, but that the visibility, the optics of these sales are very strong. And what was unusual about this sale of Jerry Feinberg is that There was no guarantee. The state declined taking guarantee from Christie's, and they also refused all the third-party guarantees by people, investors, collectors, dealers. So it was really kind of a naked sale, which I can't remember attending in years, maybe over 10 years, maybe more. I really don't remember an evening sale not having any of these props that have become very commonplace in the market. I'm sure that everybody on this video knows what purpose guarantees serve, but they're there to hedge your bets if you're a consigner so that you can share profit. You can have somebody else coming in and offering to pay a certain amount for an artwork so that you have at least a guaranteed sale. But the consigners of the Feinberg sale didn't want to do that. Why didn't they want to do that? Because, you know, it's an insurance for a consigner, right? No matter what happens, you get an X amount of money. But to get that X amount of money, you have to pay. You have to give up some of your proceeds. So the estate and the lawyer who represented the estate apparently was so confident that the work will do well 
that they said, no, we'll take our risk, presumably thinking that everything will do well and everything will sell. And they also rebuffed third-party guarantees, which is how an auction house offsets its own risk, right? Because when an auction house offers a guarantee to the seller, their auction house is on the hook. So then it's like a reinsurance. So then the auction house sells its risk to third parties, also giving up some of its own upside. None of this was happening. But the third-party guarantees is basically the works are pre-sold. They're going to sell no matter what happens. They're sold. And it's only like how much they can sell for if somebody else comes into play. And increasingly, we've been seeing that the third-party guarantees go to those guarantors. There's no competition. It's only that. So it's a private sale played out in public, essentially, what it is. And so a lot of people forever have been complaining about this, but it has become like the way business is done. Well, Feinberg Cell didn't have any of those things. And so it was what it was. It was a market in real time. And it became a very dramatic moment because the market kind of shifted in real time in front of your eyes. When you look at the numbers of the sale, they don't necessarily look so horrible. I mean, they weren't they weren't great. But being in the room felt like somebody said it was like you're walking the tightrope. It really felt very intense because the estimates were set at an earlier time and they did not correspond to these changing market conditions. And so Christie's, I guess, convinced the estate to drop the reserves, to allow them to sell works at lower levels. Those reserves are not discussed. You're not supposed to know what they are. But you realize that the change is afoot because bidding starts at like, I don't know, a third of the low estimate. Usually bidding starts around the low estimate. You know, I was going over my notes from the sale and it's like, there is a work by Alice Neal. You know, the low estimate was one and a half million. Bidding started at 550,000. You know, and it was just like across the board, just this huge discount, essentially. And in many cases, works bidding picked up. And in many cases, it didn't. And it wasn't a bloodbath because a lot of things sold. But it was quite shocking because a lot of works by artists who were slam dunks in recent years sold for huge discounts to these estimates and to what they would fetch just a few years ago. And what I, I feel is so interesting about the narrative that you captured in, in your story is that the people who were starting to wake up to what was happening in the room and who started pouncing on these lower-priced artworks were dealers. These were not collectors. These were dealers who were seeing that the artworks all of a sudden were going from much lower than they would have been expected to go just a couple months earlier. And so they were seeing that there was an opportunity that was emerging to get art at what was equivalent of like a fire sale price. How did you see that unfolding before your eyes? From the back of your room, you kind of recognize, you know, which galleries are bidding on whose behalf. Like Zwerner bought a piece by Alice Neal, Gagosian bought, I think, a de Kooning and Christopher Wool and House and Worth bought an artist from their stable. And, you know, you need capital to be able to move this fast, or maybe you need an arrangement with an auction house that dealers have a lot because they have 
collateral with auction houses that could be pulled. They have artworks that they can consign to the auction houses in future seasons. So there's, it's not necessarily cash changing hands, but the galleries are much more nimble in those circumstances. They also know, is this a good work by the artist or is it not a good work by the artist? So they don't necessarily need to inspect it all over again, or like they don't know what this thing is, or is it good? How's the condition? They're experts in this artist's market. So they can move fast in those situations. And, you know, and you saw that again, it's just kind of extraordinary. I was looking again, my like little cheat sheet from the auction and work by Christopher Wool, a silkscreen estimate was one and a half million to two and a half million. Bidding started at 250,000. It's sold for 650. So it's like what, a little bit like maybe not a third, a little bit two thirds. To your point is that there are opportunities in this down market. And historically, very like savvy dealers and savvy collectors build very amazing collections during similar times in the past, historically. But you had a, a really dramatic introduction to your initial report on the Feinberg sale where you said this was the sale that almost tanked the art market because had these savvy market makers, these dealers not seen the opportunities that were unfolding before their eyes and pounced on them, the sale could have been a, a total bloodbath and, and would have uh, knocked the confidence out of the art market very quickly. But the larger kind of trajectory that we were seeing in the Feinberg sale of zero interest rate set estimates encountering the reality of a collecting and, and buying public in a, you know, a 7% interest rate environment. Money got so much tighter, things started to look a lot more expensive than they would have done just a little bit earlier. And we saw the dollar figures just like really starting to go down a steep curve. And how would you explain this downshift, generally speaking? What are some of the factors? Was there a supply and demand issue? Or supply issue, a demand issue? Was it all zero interest rate to 7% interest rate transition? What are the factors that were weighing down on the market? Well, from just talking to my sources and you know experts in the market, everybody is pointing at the interest rates and just basically that the money is much more expensive. Like money was free since 2008 financial crisis. And the entire generation of art buyers came of age in this context. All of a sudden, borrowing has become more expensive. You know, I went into this in the story because it's kind of like a context for what's fueling the art market and these sales. That for the longest time, the market had this mechanism known as 1031-like kind of exchange that allowed collectors to buy something low sell it high and delay paying capital gains and roll those capital gains into the next acquisition if you buy it of the same value. And they could keep rolling in and rolling in and rolling in so they could really capitalize on the, the growth of the prices but not pay taxes on that. And, um, you know, it's substantial amounts. You're talking about over 30%. And so that really fueled the market until the Trump administration took this legal loophole out for most categories, except for, I think, real estate, maybe something else. But definitely, it no longer was possible to do in the art market. And everybody panicked, thought, oh, my God, you know, it's going to be a disaster. But it wasn't a disaster because I think because of that low interest rate climate, 
what then really financially savvy collectors and dealers began doing instead of selling the work of art, they borrowed against it. They used it as collateral for loans. And because loans cost virtually nothing, you know, especially with banks, where I don't want to get into like all the details of that, but basically if you're a client of a major bank, you have your collection as a collateral, but they lend you using your whole net worth, all of your assets. And for the top clients, banks were competing very intensely. And in some cases, they would have like 1% rates. I've written about that like a Bloomberg. So basically, it was very cheap. You could borrow a lot of money against your art. You could put this amount of money into whatever assets, into your businesses, into acquisitions of more art. And so that started fueling the market as well and transactional. And so now the problem is that people are paying these loans. They're usually, they're like floating interest rate loans. So all of a sudden, a hedge fund manager who is borrowing against his art collection has three times higher rate of interest service. And, you know, in those huge collections, some of them are billion dollar collections, this is a lot of money. So all of that was playing. So, you know, as someone told me that, you know, money became expensive for rich people. And so suddenly everyone is talking about how deliberate collectors have become. That they're not just like a vacuum cleaner, it's just like hoovering everything up, but they're now very deliberate in how they go about buying. So I actually want to drill down there because we only have a few more minutes before we go to the question and answer session. But to drill down into the opportunities here, you were talking about how the dealers in the Feinberg sale started to see the prices lowering to a place where you couldn't afford not to buy the artwork if you were well capitalized, if you were savvy enough, if you were in the position to do so. You were just suggesting that this is a good time to ask for discounts if you're a collector. What are some other ways that opportunities are becoming apparent in the art market and how would somebody seize on them? The discounts are interesting. What I heard is that people are asking for discounts, but not necessarily getting them. I mean, people are getting maybe 20% discounts, but that's kind of not necessarily, you know, so bad. But people are asking for like 50% discounts, just really kind of outrageous numbers. And that's something that's kind of would be interesting to investigate later. And so it kind of is connected to the opportunities that exist that for many artists, let's say in these very especially speculative segment, we haven't talked about it yet, but the ultra contemporary segment that declined by 26%, it's a churn, right? We're seeing a faster and faster churn of artists coming in, young artists, prices going from like zero to like over a million dollars very easily, one after another, and then they kind of cycling out. On the primary market, the artist prices are increasing as well. And when the artists are cycling out of that churn of price spike, there are now many artists whose primary prices are higher than their secondary prices. And then galleries are now in this predicament. What are they going to do? You historically were not supposed to drop the price. So the price could only go up. But what if there is no resale? What if you can't resale the work at a certain level? And that's what some people told me that the opportunities now are in the day sales of the auctions. Hmm. Explain why. 
Well, because the resale prices are lower at auction on some of these artists than their primary prices at the galleries. It's like an inversion. But how can you sustain that if you're a dealer and you can get things more cheaply at auction that creates a lot of bad incentives? And that has been actually kind of an open secret in the market that for majority of the artists, that is the case. That it's very hard actually to resell a work of art. But we as journalists, and I think we'll all focus very much on the most exciting, the frothiest, the newsiest areas, right? And so we always focus on the trajectory of the price increase. I don't know if it ever has been so vast, like it concerns so many artists and so many galleries, this situation. So I think this is something we keep an eye on. But for collectors, that certainly is a place of opportunity. Day sales, who knew? (laughs) I want to ask one more question before going to the question and answer session. And I don't know if there is such a clear correlation here, but when we're talking about the kind of gigantic boom in prices for ultra contemporary artists that we saw over the past couple of years, it was kind of coinciding a lot with the NFT and crypto boom. And they've kind of both fallen down around the same time. I mean, the the ultra contemporary prices seem to persist about a half a year beyond where the crypto um, speculation was focusing. Is there any overlap here where we're dealing with the same kind of players? How do you explain the rise and fall of the ultra contemporary market so dramatically? Well, the question is, is it the same pool of collectors who is going after both of those categories, right? We definitely have seen an influx of younger buyers. I mean, I don't even know if we can say that they're collectors in that kind of historical sense, but we definitely have seen a massive influx of investors into the art market since the pandemic, younger investors. They came in when interest rates were low and there was excess capital. People were bored and they started buying art and they started trading art. Platforms like Masterworks definitely lend to that line of thinking that art only goes up, the values only go up. And so the question is like, it's unclear, I guess, what this next generation of buyers, collectors care about. What art do they want to support? Do they think of art collecting in the same way as previous generations? Do they want to acquire art, live with it? Do they think of it only in financial terms? I spoke with one advisor who said, for example, like minimalist prices are now quite soft, you know, and if you were a collector of post-war art, you would want to have a Donald Judd in your collection. And now it's actually, you can get one for a very good price. But does this new group of art buyers want Donald Judd? Do they know who it is? Do they care about this work? Do they even interest in acquiring it? We don't know, you know? And so I think that kind of everyone is trying to figure out what captures their attention, you know, what makes them want something. And I think with NFTs, definitely they're interested in the speculative element of it, right? And definitely the speculative element, I think, unites both, in my mind, you know, that ultra-contemporary frothiness that we've seen, the bubble, and the NFTs as well. It was almost like art is a form of currency, like NFTs is a form of currency. Which is not so different from the hedge fund collectors who came in and financialized the market during those like kind swaps that you were talking about. That financialization is a very catchy way of getting into the art market. But okay, so now 
I would like to turn things over to the audience. Uh, Here we go to our first question. So Pam Campbell asks, do you think it would have made any difference if the Feinberg sale had been at Sotheby's rather than Christie's? Are you comfortable commenting on that? Thank you for the question. I I don't think so necessarily because it wasn't necessarily the auction house. The auction house didn't make the decision to not have the guarantees, to not have third-party guarantees. They sort of followed what the client wanted and the client wanted certain things. And the client was very confident about, as I said, in the values of these works. I heard from sources even before the collection was announced that the family thought that this is like a 400 million, a half a billion dollar collection. So they had very high expectations. I don't know, really. I don't think it would make a difference in this case. Maybe how they would display the works, potentially how they would market them promote them. I don't have an answer to that because I really just don't know what was their pitch. But it was interesting that you wouldn't find a single photograph of Jerry Feinberg in Christie's promotional materials, or I haven't seen it. They really kind of focused on the story, not of a family, not of a man, individual, and also his wife was very actively involved. She was not mentioned at all. So they really focused their story on like a century of art. And maybe I have misspoke actually before, and I apologize that the works in the collection that were sold, they span a century. And that was kind of the pitch. So it started from 1920s. I think it started with Man Ray and it went all the way till now. So that was how they promoted this collection. So I really don't know whether it would have made a difference if the focus was on the collectors behind these works and not necessarily on the works themselves, possibly. In this kind of situation, right, the auction house can advise, but ultimately it's the client who makes the decision. My understanding was that the client really had those various, you know, the numbers and they wanted to capture all the upside. They didn't want to give up any upside through guarantees. It seems from what our reporting has shown us is that Christie's is very competitive these days and is really trying to edge out Sotheby's. I wonder if there's a scenario where the estate went to Sotheby's and Christie's and Sotheby's wasn't interested in the kind of, you know, unusual structure that they wanted for the sale. I'm not sure. It's funny, but the auction houses, I notice, that's at least my impression, that there's a season when one auction house is like just totally killing it and they are winning over the competition and they get so bold and then they agree to all kinds of deals like this. And then they fall on their face. You know, they don't make enough money. And then all of a sudden for the next season, they suddenly become very conservative and they're like, oh, no, 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 that deal, we're not going to make any money. We're not going to take that deal. And it really ebbs and flows. It's Christie's, it's Sotheby's. It just happens all the time. Going back and forth. <laughs> they become more conservative, then they become more aggressive. They're willing to pay for market share. They're not willing to pay for market share, you know, when they actually lose money. You know, and they can lose money, as you guys know, I'm sure, very quickly. They make one wrong bet, they guarantee one high price picture, and it doesn't sell, and they're stuck with it, you know, for years. Moving on, next one is from Adnan Bashir for Katya. The majority of collectors at the top level, i.e. blue chip, are not as affected by the higher interest rate environment given their net worth. 
So could the slowdown in transactions be driven more by a lack of confidence and a wait-and-see approach in terms of looking for bargains in the same way as there has been a slowdown in the market for ultra-contemporary works due to a lack of confidence with speculative buying? Thank you. That's a really good question. I'm not so confident that they are not affected by those interest rates because they're highly leveraged, even if they're billionaires. And so my sense is that it is biting them, you know, just paying so much more year on year. And this is something else, you know, that came up in my reporting that everyone is talking about in this kind of class of collectors, like opportunity costs. Like what else can they spend a million dollars or $20 million on right now that would yield them some interest that art is not? It's not that maybe they are not affected by this, but, you know, they're comparing assets. They're very diversified and art is only one part of their investment. So I think that that is definitely happening at the moment. And that's how they are looking at what they put into art market versus other investment areas. But Absolutely. You know, confidence, 100%. You know, I think it affects also consigners, more of those highly trophy, you know, masterpiece market. And so the estates that have to sell, they have to sell. And I do hear that there are a bunch of estates in play right now and the auction houses are pitching for them. And so there probably will be some good property for sale again, but people who can decide who don't have to sell In fact, a lot of people don't want to put their works in this uncertain market and consign right now because of all those reasons, economic, political, geopolitical, all this stuff. Like maybe now is not the best time to sell. It raises the question of how lasting will this reset be if the reset is driven by a lack of confidence in the prices being equivalent to the value of the art. If the confidence in those prices is is falling and those prices are going to have to fall in tandem. How long is the market going to be suppressed for, right? I mean, we always see these charts of the market having continuously um, upward trending growth over the long term, but it does have down and up spikes. So it comes down to like if they get one great painting, right, for their mod sale or for their contemporary sale, that could make a huge difference. It could make everything. It could double the results from those sales. It could be one basket. Could be one, I don't know about Warhol right now. De Kooning also is a little soft, but it could be one great painting or sculpture that makes all the difference. But that the question is, how do they get the consigner to give it to them? That's another thing that I keep hearing from advisors is that people like are willing to stretch for these great works of art when they come up, but it cannot be like mediocre. Like it cannot be a so-so Van Gogh. It cannot be like weird. Matisse. An incredible Bible? Yes. Like an amazing once in a lifetime. I mean, I don't don't really believe in this once in a lifetime whole characterizations because there's inevitably another one of those, but, you know, something truly exceptional in any category, a jewel, a painting, a sculpture, a book, a manuscript, as we've seen kind of again and again. So that mentality, I think, still continues despite everything else that's going on. But for everything less than that, and most of the things are less than that, you know, 99% of the things, you know, so that's the actual trade. Things are a little shakier or a lot shakier. Hmm. Okay, next one. Joy Simmons asks, 
The market for art by African-American and African artists, mainly figurative and abstract work, also seems to have been hot for the past few years. Is that a correct reading? Do you see that continuing or cooling? Another good question. Thank you. Definitely, it has been a huge trend since the pandemic started before and really accelerated for myriads of reasons and all very important ones. But again, like Red, we've seen such saturation of a particular type of painting that has come to the market. Again, we've seen that crazy spikes in prices. I think that maybe it's plateauing. And I think that you see a lot of works by artists who would be like in evening sales are no longer in those sales and now they're in day sales. You know, there was so much material. And in some ways, some works were very similar and the styles were very similar. You know, as in every movement, in every era, really, very few people kind of stand the test of art history and time. It would be very interesting to see who are these artists who remain out of this particular stylistic narrative. I feel like the market for Black art as it kind of like rise and falls in this current near term is maybe not quite as exciting as the fact that over the past couple of years, a lot of Black artists, collectors, curators, dealers have started to come into the art economy and really make some foundational shifts in, in the makeup of that economy and build real lasting presences that I think ensure that over time, even if the prices for the current group of star Black artists uh, rise and falls, over time that there's going to be inevitable growth in this over the long term of more and more artists, more and more collectors, more and more people participating in this market in almost a similar way to the way that NFTs unlock this kind of a tech community. So NFTs have plummeted in a really, you know, kind of like dramatic way in value. But the door that has been open to a previously not involved tech community, I just think that these are whole new shifts that are only still nascent in the art economy that are going to increase um, in power and value over time. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I just said to that, I was just in Denver last weekend and I was at the Denver Art Museum and they have a wall. And on that wall, they have um, contemporary artists from Ghana, from China. There is also a Matisse painting. And the theme was twins or duplicates. And so there were a lot of twin type of figures or two sitters. It was just a very wonderful and interesting pairing. There were a couple of other uh, modernist artists and then ultra-contemporary artists with all these different backgrounds. And it was fantastic to see that presentation. And it was so very refreshing to see artists that I've been writing about in the context of the market, actually on a museum wall. I think also whatever happens in the market, I think that a lot of these artists, African artists, African-American artists, the art world really realized, right, like how white it's been and how how much work you know, needs to be done to just have some equity and parity. And so museum acquisitions have been on the rise very actively. And so I think to see these artists in museums is very important. And also to see 
members of the Black community looking at these artworks. And it was a really wonderful experience because the audience in the museum was incredibly diverse. You know, in some ways, much more diverse than I saw people on the street. But it was noticeable. And, you know, I think it's terrific. We've got a lot of questions flooding in now, uh, right, as we're getting to the end. So let's uh, keep things going a little bit longer and um, go to anonymous attendee asks, if it didn't happen with the Feinberg auction, what would have happened or when would it have happened? It, I assume you're talking about the correction, right? And that shift that we've been discussing. Yes. So I think that it would have been less visible, perhaps, optically, because we mentioned earlier, auction houses have become very savvy in how they telegraph their results. Like the auction may feel awful in the room, but the numbers, because of the bias premiums and all this additional money added at the end, show a different picture. So one of those instruments that are relatively new and noticeably to us who report on that was that you know, auction houses now withdraw lots up all into the sale. Like before they would say, okay, this are a lot or this lot or these five lots were withdrawn. But sometimes now they withdraw it minutes before the work is supposed to sell. And they withdraw it usually because there's no interest in this work. And instead of having it fail to sell and affect their metrics, they withdraw it. And sometimes they sell it privately or Sometimes they consign it to a gallery at Art Basel, whatever. They try to sell it later. But then they say, oh, we had 90% of this auction sold. I remember in May, my colleague, Tim Schneider, was covering an auction. And I think the certain number of lots were withdrawn, the main lots that affected like the value of the whole sale. And then... Maybe everything sold and the auction house was like, oh, it's a white glove sale. But how can you say it's a white glove sale if you withdrew like top lot and then the next top lot and the next top lot? You know, so I think that to your question, it would have happened. It just wouldn't be that visible. We would have to still like read the tea leaves and analyze everything. And, you know, transition is happening. We just don't know how long or how bad it's going to be. You know, I guess to keep in mind that it is an opportunity for someone, even when this shift is happening, but I think it would have happened anyway. So speaking of the opportunities, the last question we have is from Julie Miyoshi, and I'm going to slightly combine it with, with another question, which is to say, what do you forecast for the art market for the remainder of the year and going into next year? And what are the actionable next steps that newer collectors should do with this reset over that period? We don't know really what's going to happen because for, I think, the biggest public barometers of the market are these auctions in May and November in New York and to a lesser degree in London that are coming up in October. And then there will be auctions in Hong Kong. And so I think we need to wait and see what kind of material auction houses get and what kind of collections and estates, what kind of material is there. And they're very good at that. If they are smart about their estimates, I think they can probably capitalize on this view that there are opportunities in the downward market. But I'm not sure if the young and the new collectors would necessarily be the buyers in the down market, because 
I don't know if I didn't know much about the market and the artist. I don't quite know. Really, you would need probably either to maybe hire some smart advisor to guide you through it, or maybe just follow your eyes and buy things that you like, you know, and that you would live with and that you could afford that wouldn't go into storage or wouldn't be a flip, but actually works of art to put on your walls. I think that's always a good idea. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. It really just depends like what kind of buyer you are. If you really love living with art, then definitely it's one thing. And if you just as an investor, it's a, I would maybe wait and see a little bit. If you're an investment minded collector, you're automatically setting yourself up to have a greater chance of failing than mm-hmm. if you're a collector who goes out and meets artists who you admire, whose style you really appreciate, whose work you want to live with, and that you factor in the investment consideration as, okay, so this artist also has this kind of trajectory. I know that they have an increasing number of museum shows, or they have interest from these kind of tastemaking curators or collectors, and then buy them with your love of the art in the foreground and the investment in the background, you have a lot less to lose. Also, I think that it just takes like a lot of learning. I would say I would use this time maybe to learn if you're a new collector about what you like, where your eye takes you, and also learn about uh, artists and art cycles and movements. And there are so many undervalued artists, always critically important artists who are undervalued. I've been writing about female artists who are just always undervalued, but, you know, specifically, I would say the 80s artists who are so undervalued compared to even very young female artists coming of age now. And, you know, those older female artists are pioneers and incredibly important art, historically speaking, and relatively much more affordable. Their prices are not as high as men and younger artists. So that would be somewhere I would look. I don't know, old master prints. I, but how do you? Do- it's so hard to answer the question because it's like you don't know what how much money the person. You don't know. Is. You really don't it's, know. It's a lot easier to make money if you have a lot of money. If you don't have a lot of money, you have to make a lot of friends. <laughs> and then yes, become friends with artists and trade. become friends with artists and be lucky. I think that's a fun place to end this conversation that began in the billion dollar art market. Thank you very much for tuning in, everybody. Thank you very much, Katya, for such a fascinating conversation. This has been a lot of fun. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you want to sign up for Artnet Pro or just find out more about it, please go to news.artnet.com slash subscribe. Again, that's news.artnet.com slash subscribe. And if you like this podcast, you can subscribe to The Art Angle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.